like to start by acknowledging that I live on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. So if you've been following my blog and my podcast up to this point, you know I talk a lot about mental health and how we can translate some of the mental health strategies from counseling practice and therapeutic practice into the classroom. So I did a blog post a while ago on mental health in schools using cognitive behavioral therapy. So I just want to touch on that today because it's a really uh, effective means of treating uh, anxiety and depression. And when I say it's effective, I mean it's evidence-based. And for some folks, it's highly effective. For some folks, it isn't. Because as with all therapeutic modalities, it's really important to take an individualist approach. However, cognitive behavioral therapy does have a lot of strategies that can be really effective in the classroom. Because these are strategies that you can employ in moments when a young person is dealing with anxiety, if they appear to be struggling with low mood, it can be helpful to integrate these practices into your kind of day-to-day teaching uh, teaching work. So <clears throat> I just want to start by saying that this is not a replacement for years of training, certification, or clinical supervision required to do actual cognitive behavioral therapy. What I'm going to be talking about here are some of the strategies that are used in cognitive behavioral therapy by professionals that can also be employed in a classroom. For young people who are experiencing high levels of anxiety or depression, they really should be referred on to a mental health practitioner who can use these strategies in a structured way. And like I said, because every young person is unique, every person is unique, CBT might not be the best fit for every single person. So a therapist will be able to kind of decide what the best approach is going to be. They can try out different strategies. They can use CBT along with other talk therapy modalities and kind of help the young person figure out what's going to work best for them. So this here is just to give you kind of an outline of what CBT is and how you can benefit from some aspects of this model of therapeutic intervention. As we talk about CBT, it can be helpful to look at some of the pros and cons of using this in your classroom and just in general. So some pros of CBT when we're talking about it in terms of therapeutic intervention is that it's typically conducted within a relatively short frame of time. So a young person might only be referred to counseling for six to eight weeks and over that time they learn those tools and strategies with a therapist and ideally will be practicing them on their own. It's manualized, so it's pretty often the practice that any therapist can do with relative consistency. You don't need to know the historical context of where anxiety originates, which is I think a huge pro for a classroom as well because we're not therapists. We don't want to put young people in a position where they have to expose their experience of trauma or their histories around anxiety or depression. We can just offer some of these tools as a way to support them through their anxious feelings. And that can be a really good method in a classroom. CBT is also pretty versatile and it can be done one-to-one -one or in group sessions. So that's another reason it's really useful in a classroom is that because you don't have to disclose your history of trauma, you don't have to disclose what you've been through in your past, 
you can use many of these strategies with your entire class of students without it being over stimulating or triggering for most. CBT is also goal oriented, so it allows people to problem solve a specific feeling or behavior pattern, and that can be really helpful in class too. So if you're noticing that there's a number of students who experience test anxiety, you can begin to implement some of these strategies pre-testing to just help to support all students in practicing some of these, these uh, mindfulness and uh, calming strategies. CBT can also be used to treat a lot of different things, not just anxiety and depression. So this can be helpful for every student, for your students who are chronic overthinkers or perseverators who don't necessarily fit an anxiety or depression diagnosis, but you can tell that they put a lot of, they have a lot of pressure on them to do well. Uh, it's also great for students who may be experiencing ADHD symptoms or presenting with ADHD type symptoms, diagnosis or no. And uh, it can it can really just help to offer some useful tools for those kids who just need a little bit of space throughout the day. And also because CBT is the most widely researched therapeutic modality for treating behavioral responses and difficult thought patterns, it's one of those things that if you keep coming back to it in your classroom, you always have a way to defend its use. And that can be really helpful because as teachers, we're often in a position where we have to defend our curriculum, whether it's through submitting lesson plans. I know some districts have to do that. I'm really fortunate at my school where uh, you know, my administrators, they give us relative autonomy. So I, I don't really have to submit lesson plans, but in situations where you do have to do that, it can be really useful to actually provide the evidence behind why you're implementing certain things that are not necessarily curriculum content. So those are all good things about CBT. But with everything that has positives to it, there are also potential cons to it. So CBT requires consistent use of these set structured techniques and often includes homework in order for it to actually really be effective over long term. Because you'd be implementing them in your classrooms, that's not such a bad thing. You would then be providing them space in school to practice these skills rather than students having to do it at home. However, unless young people are using these strategies on their own when they're experiencing anxious moments or depression, etc., chances are they're not going to find them super effective because you're going to be implementing them possibly at times when students aren't experiencing any symptoms of anything and don't necessarily need the practice. You're teaching it for a later date. And if the student chooses to not employ those strategies at a later date, they might not find the benefit of it. While current empirical research supports CBT and treatment of anxiety, at least a third of young participants actually do not respond to treatment. And part of this is because of the homework, Part of this is because young people, it, the emotions that they're experiencing are really complicated and it, the kind of talk therapy that they can often benefit from the most is actually being able to deep dive what their experiences are. Again, that's really dependent on the young person. Also, most research entails the use of CBT in collaboration with SSRIs or antidepressants, which begs the question of whether or not it's the CBT that's effective or the SSRI. And so it's hard to know. And it's also really 
when people are sent home with homework for a therapy, it's really hard to know how effectively they're practicing it or how often or consistently they're practicing those skills. For youth engaging in a CBT approach, it's important to note the importance of parental involvement as well. So at school, because we probably aren't going to be advocating for these things to be take-home projects unless we have a specific class that allows for that kind of thing. For instance, like here in BC, we have a planning class, which could actually really benefit from using some of this stuff and teaching it as part of the curriculum, uh, family studies, social justice, those kinds of things I think could really benefit from including it in the curriculum, in which case I think parental involvement could be beneficial, but you can't in any situation count on parents to be involved in their child's learning. You just don't necessarily know the family dynamics. And in some cases, it's also not super helpful to invite parents to be on board with that because if it's not part of the curriculum specifically, parents might not buy in and that can be tricky. Another aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy is exposure therapy. And so a lot of people might know this from the once popular show Fear Factor in which they would put people into situations that they would likely be fearful and uh, then they'd win a bunch of money at the end. And basically that's kind of what exposure therapy is. It's having somebody confront their fear piece by piece in little incremental steps. Typically, this is done with a therapist who helps the person plan out what these steps are. They might, for the first week, just be willing to look at a spider, the next, like a photo of a spider on the computer. Maybe the next week, they're willing to, uh, you know, see a spider on television where it's actually moving and they see more of it. And then the week after, maybe they're willing to, you know, see a spider at home or walk past one outside without panicking and practicing deep breathing, things like that. So it's just step by step trying to expose folks to the things that they're afraid of to learn that there really isn't anything to be scared of and that it's okay to have this emotional response and not necessarily react to it. So not that we should be doing this or really have opportunities to do this a lot in school, but it is considered to be quite effective with young kids, not quite as effective with older youth or adults in the same way. Not that it's not effective at all, just less effective. Uh, finally, there's also very little research that assesses the efficacy of CBT across diverse populations, countries of origin or ethnicity. And that's really problematic because a lot of CBT research has been done with white middle-class families. So we're not looking at different socioeconomic statuses and we're not looking at people of color or really any type of diversity. After looking at some of the pros and cons of CBT, and of course there's probably many more that I haven't addressed here, how does this apply to non-clinical work with children and youth? How can we employ these strategies and which strategies specifically should we look at employing as teachers and not as therapeutic professionals? First of all, a big principle behind cognitive behavioral therapy is allowing your feelings to be there not trying to bury them, push them down, pretend they don't exist, or uh, avoid them. So a lot of avoidance strategies for young people in particular might be scrolling through their phone or leaving the classroom, things like that. 
So what we're looking for is for students to actually just ride through the worry. And we can encourage this really gently and do this by you know students who frequently leave early, for instance, because they're anxious. You can say, how would it feel to stay an extra five minutes today? Let's just try to sit with it for an extra five minutes. And explaining to students that every emotion is actually a temporary emotion. We don't feel it consistently from the moment we wake to the moment we go to sleep. And for folks who have diagnosed depression or diagnosed anxiety, it can really feel like it is 24 seven, but it's not. There's moments of reprieve where they're not thinking about it and it might be few and far between and they might not be noticing them that much, but those moments do exist. So reminding students that yes, you are going to feel anxious sometimes and that's okay. Let's just try to just feel it for a few more moments and see how long it takes for it to pass. And sometimes maybe taking a drink of water will help it to pass, sometimes eating a snack. But overall, what we're looking for here is for students to ride the worry wave, acknowledge that it's there. It's not a bad, inherently bad feeling. It might be uncomfortable, but it is a temporary emotion. And every emotion has a time and a place and that no feeling is ever wrong. And we can use that kind of, that kind of language to, um, to kind of guide and coach students through that process. The next thing we can do is implement deep breathing practices in our classroom. And I'm at the point now where when I walk into my room, I can really tell if it's a, a group that's experiencing a lot of anxiety that day. And it might not be every student, but there's almost a vibration in the air when they're is an overwhelming sense of anxiety. You can see it in, in young people who are tapping their feet or fidgeting a lot or having trouble sitting still in their chairs, who are just visibly less engaged in some way. Doing some deep breathing collectively as a class can be a really effective strategy to get everyone to feel a little bit calmer. It helps to start by asking everyone to have their feet planted firmly on the ground. That's a bit of a grounding exercise. The next thing that helps is feet or hands, sorry, hands either on the top of the desk, on your lap, or on your chair, just in a way so that you're not kind of wringing your hands or uh, playing with the rings on your finger. It's about stillness. And then practicing box breathing. So you breathe in for a count of four, hold for a count of four, breathe out for a count of four, hold for a count of four. And you can repeat this process several times until everyone is kind of breathing in harmony. And it can help to create that entrainment in your space where everybody is kind of at the same level, same vibration. And it can also just help your students who are feeling a bit more anxious just get some oxygen to their brain. Another strategy is the see, hear, feel. Having students identify five things that they can see, five things that they can hear, and five things that they can feel can help them to feel more grounded in the present moment and help them to acknowledge what is actually happening in the present moment. So young people who are experiencing anxiety or depression might also experience dissociation where they go to a seemingly other place or they zone out. See, hear, feel can help students refocus and recenter on the present moment. So the things that they're concerned about that are happening in the future or the things that they're depressed about that are 
have already happened aren't in that moment with them. And they may have to go through this cycle a few times. Five things they can see, five things they can hear, five things they can feel, and then start again at the beginning if they're still having trouble feeling grounded and present in your space. Another thing that can be helpful is guided meditation. This can either be done by the teacher who's scripting a peaceful scenario and having students close their eyes as you guide them through, or there's tons of great guided meditations on YouTube. Uh, there's also a bunch that you can download through like iTunes music or like Apple music or Spotify or whatever. But basically the idea here is that you're setting a different tone. And again, you're bringing students into the present moment, giving them something else auditory to listen to and focus on. Some students are not going to be comfortable closing their eyes. It's important to give them the option to not have their eyes closed if they are anxious closing their eyes. There's also fact versus opinion. When you notice a student becoming stressed about a particular situation, try asking them whether or not the thoughts they're experiencing is fact or opinion. We do this often in high school English when we ask students to find evidence of something in a text. We're merely asking them to find evidences of their experiences as well. So for instance, if you look at a picture of a clown, some folks might say, oh, this clowns are scary. I don't like clowns. He looks evil. Those are all opinions. Facts would be something like the clown has a bow tie. The clown has a big red nose. The clown has big curly rainbow hair. The clown is wearing a funny hat. Actually, funny would also be an opinion. Yeah, it'd be an opinion, but the clown is wearing a hat would be a fact. So what you're doing basically is getting people to tease out the fact versus opinion of what it is that they're concerned about. So for instance, if a student says to you, I am going to fail this test. Okay, well that's opinion. The test hasn't happened yet. So let's look at your past history of tests. Have you ever failed a test in this class? Chances are, if they're worried about failing the test, they probably haven't actually failed a test in your class. They may have come close. They may have been struggling with the subject matter, but odds are, even if they failed one test, they haven't failed all of them. So that would be an opinion, not a fact. So the fact would be, sure, you failed one test before, but you successfully passed four other ones. That's the fact. So you're helping students tease apart the realities that they live in. They often formulate a negative reality and that's due to their overwhelming experience of anxiety or depression. And I think I've mentioned this before in past podcasts, but depression is usually past-oriented thoughts and regret, guilt, remorse. And anxiety is usually future-oriented thoughts. So that would be worries and stresses about what could happen next. So we have the opportunity in these moments when students are expressing their anxiety, their future-oriented thoughts, to tease apart what has happened in the past to try to disprove the opinion that they have right now. It's the same when they express a, a past-oriented thought or a depression-based thought. So for instance, uh, no one likes me because I wasn't chosen for the basketball team. The I wasn't chosen for the basketball team may be fact, but the nobody likes me is an opinion. So what you would then have to do is tease apart 
why this student feels that nobody now likes them is it simply because they weren't chosen for the basketball team and how do we disprove that with them how do we point to the people that are still in their lives whether they play basketball or not the people who still love them the friends that they do still have another part of cognitive behavioral therapy is thought tracking or journaling journaling i think is a great practice to include in a classroom whether it's an English class or a math class, there can be opportunities for journalism worked in. But you can do this after covering any intense or heavy material or when you just notice an energy shift in the group and the group needs a little bit of grounding. You can also suggest this as strategies for individual students who may be struggling in some capacity. So if you have a young person who is experiencing a lot of anxiety and they're needing a lot of support and they might be leaning on you a lot more than you actually have the capacity to take on for lots of different reasons. I know one reason that young people choose to lean on their teachers is because the counseling and support staff at schools are so overtaxed and overwhelmed with their caseloads. So a young person who's having these difficulties might not feel that their difficulty warrants taking up the valuable time of one of these other helping professionals. And of course that's not true. Of course they are always willing to make space for these young people. However, a student just might feel more comfortable talking to you in the first moments that they're actually open to talking about their experience at all. So thought tracking is an opportunity for a student to take some ownership over their unhelpful thoughts. It can uh, it can actually help students assess a situation, assess where the thought originated, how often they perceive that to be true. And again, kind of like the fact versus, versus opinion, tease it apart and identify the preferred thought and feeling. So again, they're looking for evidence, evidence that doesn't support that thought. This is a really good practice to employ in an English classroom when you're looking at character study and character work because you can teach a lot of these principles through uh, a student's relationship to a character in a novel or a character in a short story or poem. And it can be a great way to, uh, to teach these skills without a student feeling put on the spot or feeling as though they're exposed or vulnerable. They can do it on behalf of a character, on behalf of somebody that they relate to on television. And that can be a really effective means of students then seeing the connections for themselves. It's also helpful to allow students opportunities to identify how actions lead to thoughts, which subsequently lead to behaviors and vice versa. So thoughts lead to behaviors, which lead to actions. And it's just this kind of endless cycle. And again, you can employ this when you're talking about novels, characters in any context of story, movie, whatever and begin to dissect the character's actions and identify what their thoughts may have been or were, depending on how much insight we have into that character and what behaviors this leads to. And then what comes from these thoughts and behaviors? What are the subsequent actions? This can help students understand this in their own lives, just like we did with the thought tracking. It can encourage students to identify other thought patterns or note differences in how people think and behave and how those behaviors impact people's actions and then their thoughts. So again, it's just a cycle. And how our own thoughts, because they shape our behaviors and our actions, they really dictate what happens in our lives. And so the more that we can have a little bit control over those things, 
the more we can feel like we are actually autonomous beings in our own lives. And that can be very empowering for some students who feel connected to that idea. Also, teaching students to break tasks into small manageable pieces are, is a really effective way of, of supporting young people when they are feeling overwhelmed. School is a scary and overwhelming place at best. And uh, teachers are really good at offering things in pieces. And the more that we can do that, the better. When we give an assignment, even if it's a really big assignment, if we can split it into sections to support young people and okay, this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, it can make it feel like they're not biting off this huge project that just they once they see it, they don't know where to start. And that can be a really effective way of preventing an anxious response to schoolwork. And finally, when I talked about exposure therapy, there are ways to do that in school as well. Encouraging our students to not shy away from situations that feel anxiety provoking, but also not pushing them too hard can be a helpful way of getting students to step a little bit out of their comfort zone every day. So for example, I do this in drama all the time. I start every single class with a warm up, and that can be a really helpful kind of jumping off point for students who are really anxious about participating in drama. Sometimes in the first week, they don't participate at all in the warm up. However, after time, I'll say to them, hey, I've noticed you're not really participating in warm up. How about this week you come and stand in the circle? And they might be reluctant at first, but when they stand in the circle, they realize it's not so scary. Then the next time it's okay. Now I want you to try to participate in the game just for one round. They'll realize it's not so scary. So the next time we play a game, maybe they'll stay for two rounds, maybe three. Once they realize that the rest of the class isn't judging or criticizing how they play or participate, they're more willing and able to engage in the full warm up. After warm up, maybe they'll actually participate in the group work. And so we can gradually encourage and support students to take bigger risks. So overall, there's lots of strategies in cognitive behavioral therapy that can be really useful in a classroom setting. However, I do still encourage you, if you do see students who are consistently anxious, consistently depressed, seem unsettled in school, seeking some further support from a counselor at school can be really, really useful. And those counselors can make community referrals for them, which can provide the kind of necessary intervention that young people need in order to improve and feel better. So I hope that this was useful for you and I would really love to hear if you have used any CBT strategies in your classroom, if you practice mindfulness in your classroom, and which of these strategies were helpful for you. You can find me on my website at www.thecontemporaryeducator.com or you can also find me on Instagram at teach.emote.repeat or on Facebook at the Contemporary Educator page. Thanks for tuning in and have a wonderful rest of your day.